Good morning again, Lakeshore. We are so glad that you're here. Welcome to our services today. We welcome those at our Smyrna campus and those that are connecting with us online. It is so good to have you here with us. We are in a series called By Faith. That clip uh, from the classic movie, Mary Poppins, uh, hits on the subject that we're talking about today. And we're, the title is The Fulfillment of Faith, but what we're really focusing on is the joy that comes with the fulfillment of our faith. And I believe God wants us to be a joyful people. In this series, we've been going from uh, Genesis chapter 12, looking at the life of Abraham and different things that happened in his life as he walked by faith and struggled with his faith and sometimes lived powerfully in his faith like he needed to. Sometimes he, he did not stand in his faith the way he needed to, but we can learn from both the good and the bad. And today we're going to be all the way up to Genesis chapter 21. If you want to be turning there today, Genesis 21, you can pull that up on your smartphone or tablet. By the way, I want to put in a plug for the Version Bible app. If you have a smartphone or a tablet where you have apps, uh, you can get that app. And we put our sermon notes on there each week so you can pull them up through that Bible app. But that Bible app is good for a lot of other things, too. It's got a verse of the day that you can read. It's got uh, devotional plans that you can follow and read through the Bible programs. There's a lot of great things you can do individually and with your family with that app. I think we should embrace technology and use it for all the good that we can use it for. And that's one of those good ways we can use technology today. And I appreciate that, and we recommend it. We've got it on our website where you can click on the link and go to Version and get the app if you want to. Uh, we'd love to help you with that. Well, we are in Genesis 21, but, but leading up to that, I wanted to remind you of where we left off last week. And back in Genesis 18 and verse 10, you remember that Abraham and Sarah had some visitors who came and said that they were going to destroy the city of Sodom. But they also brought with them a reiteration of a promise that God had made early on, 25 years before that, a promise that God had made. Only this time, when they repeat the promise, they put a very small time frame on it. Remember back in Genesis 18 and verse 10, one of them said this, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, that promise has been there for a long time, for many years. They were already old when they first got the promise. Now they're getting even older, and it seemed like maybe that promise was never going to be fulfilled. Aren't you sad when somebody tells you something's going to happen that you look forward to, and it just it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen. They don't follow through. You don't see that it's going to take place, and you begin to lose hope, don't you? That it's ever going to happen. And, and I know Abraham and Sarah have struggled for years with this idea. We're going to have this son, but nothing happened. God made a promise, but we don't see any sign that he's going to fulfill that promise. Remember, they got off track and tried to make it happen themselves in the wrong way. And it caused all kinds of problems because they just didn't see God doing anything. And that can be discouraging for any of us. Even if we're... Strong in our faith, when we don't see God keeping His promises, what we think He ought to be doing to keep His promises, and we, we go through a long enough period with that, we can begin to waver in our faith too. And this story we're looking at today is where God says, all right, I'm going to narrow this down for you. Within the next year, 
you're going to have a baby. And then we jump ahead. We're still within that year to Genesis 21. And we see that that promise was received, was received by Abraham and Sarah. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had, what's that word? Promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had done what? Promised him. You see, when God makes a promise... He will keep it. It's not always in the timing we want it to be in. It's not always the way and the process that we want it to be done in. But God keeps all of his promises. Now that's important for us because we go through struggles and challenges like Abraham and Sarah. And we, we wonder where God is and we cry out to God and we say, God, you promised you'd do this, you'd do that. And when we don't see it happening, it would be easy for us to get discouraged if we didn't have a record of God's faithfulness to his promises. But we do have that record. Not just with Abraham, but, but over and over again in Scripture. But here's the thing about God's promises. That last phrase is, is very important. It says, at the very time God had promised him. Here's the thing about God's promises. He fulfills them in his time when he knows everything is lined up for that promise to be fulfilled. His ways are not our ways, it says. And his, his knowledge and his wisdom is far greater than ours, right? So he knows better than us what needs to happen, when it needs to happen, how it needs to happen. And just because it's not happening the way we think or thought or planned doesn't mean God is not keeping his promise. For all these years, Abraham and Sarah have been struggling, not thinking, thinking God was not keeping this promise. And yet God had it all timed out. When the, when the time was right, he did this thing that he promised he was going to do. Now, you and I and Abraham and Sarah, none of us knows exactly why that was the right time. See, we don't know the mind of God, and that's a good thing. He wouldn't be much of a God if we could understand it all, right? I mean, think of how limited our minds are. If we could wrap our head around God and all of God's wisdom and thinking and God's ways, then that wouldn't make him very much of a God, would it? I can't explain and fully understand exactly why it had to happen, when it happened, the way it happened. But I can trust God that he knows best and that I don't. And, and therefore, I can hold on to my faith that his timing will be right in the fulfillment of his promises. Last week we touched on this verse. I wanted to go back to it again in Ephesians 3 and verse 20. It says this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Here's the thing about God and his ability to keep promises. He can do immeasurably more than what we could even think of even imagine possible so if you're doubting is God going to keep his promise is he is he somehow not able to do what he said he was going to do just remember he's not only able to do what you think he could do he's able to do immeasurably more than you could ever imagine that he could do but he's doing it in his time in his way 
for his purposes. And we've got to learn to develop that trust, that faith in him and his wisdom and his ability to do what he promises. You go through all of scripture, you see so many promises God has made. And in the New Testament, it says all of them are yes in Jesus. He has fulfilled all of them. He is still fulfilling all of his promises that he's ever made. So we know that, that God keeps promises and, and he does it in his own time. And we know that God is able to do everything that he's promised he's going to do. Even if it means a couple 199 years old, one, the, uh, Abraham 100, Sarah 99, even giving them a baby. That, that's amazing, isn't it? But God is able and he gave them a baby. Even when it means a teenage boy with just a slingshot and five rocks takes down a giant, right? God is able. Even when it means he gets one family to build a boat the size of a football field to save humankind from the flood, God is able. Even when it means having to leave heaven and be clothed in the flesh, and die on a cross and go into the grave only to rise again on the third day. God is able to do everything that he's promised. And so we need to develop that trust, that understanding that just because we're not hearing from God right now or seeing what God's doing right now, it doesn't mean God has failed to keep his promise to us. He will faithfully keep his promises in his time. But there's something else we need to see here in this story. Not only did God keep his promise and fulfill what he said to Abraham and Sarah that he was going to do. Uh, in response to that, the second thing we need to see today is that Abraham was obedient to God after God fulfilled that promise. Look at verse 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circum circumcised him as God commanded him. Now, here's what you need to know. Abraham has been waiting all this time for the promise. Finally, it happens. And I'm sure they celebrated and it was great. We're going to talk more about that. But, but Abraham was still responsible to God after that, right? He, he still needed to walk in obedience to his faith after God kept his promise to him. And so the first thing he needed to do was give the child the name that God had instructed him to give him. And that name was Isaac. So, so Abraham was being obedient when he named the child Isaac. But then there was something else. God had initiated with Abraham a covenant agreement. And the sign of that covenant agreement was circumcision of the male ch children. And, and so on the eighth day, according to God's instructions, every male child was supposed to be circumcised after they were born. And what did Abraham do with Isaac? He had him circumcised on the eighth day. You see, Abraham had a responsibility, even after the promise was fulfilled, to stay faithful and obedient in his walk. I can't tell you how many times I've seen Christian people say, I've got to just get me through this. You know, he's going to be my priority then. I'm going, to, you know, I'm going to get back in church. I'm going to start serving him. I'm going to start giving to him when he blesses me with this new job. And I'm going to be faithful. And then God keeps this promise and he takes care of us. And what do we do shortly after? We slide right back into our old way of life. 
not really honoring God, not really serving Him, not really being obedient in our walk with Him. Isn't it easier to do for your children when you see gratitude and the right response from them? Parents, how many parents we got here? Raise your hand. Right. Isn't it easier to want to bless your children when you see them walking in obedience like they're supposed to? It doesn't mean you don't care about them when they're not obedient. It doesn't mean you don't stop loving them when they're not obedient. It doesn't mean you won't even provide for them when they're not being obedient sometimes. But it does mean it gives you greater joy as a parent to do that when you see them and their appreciation and their gratitude still being obedient and respectful. Well, God is our Father. And when He keeps His promises to us and He blesses us the way He does, don't you think it brings joy to the Father to see us continually walking in obedience to Him after He's kept the promise? <laughs> it's amazing how much bargaining we'll do with God when we're desperate and how little follow-through we have when we're not desperate anymore. At least in Abraham's life, we see that even after the promise was fulfilled, he continued to try to walk faithfully and obediently in his life before God. So he persistently continued to obey. Persistence is one of the keys. It reminded me of a story. There was this young freshman girl on a college campus, and she came out of a classroom building one day to go over to a, a class in another building. And a guy about 30 yards away uh, yelled over to her and waved his hand. He says, hello, hello, how are you? She kind of looked over, didn't recognize the guy, just put her head down and just walked on over to the other class. Well, the next day, same thing. She comes out of that classroom. The guy's about 30 yards away. Hey, hello, good to see you. And she's tried to put her head down and walk away, but this time the guy ran over there to her real quick. And she turned around to him and she said, uh, excuse me, do I know you? He said, yeah, we met yesterday. <laughs> it's kind of the way I pursued Sue Ann. It's the same kind of thing. Right? <laughs> persistence, that's what we need. Right? In relationships, persistence is key. And God wants us to be persistent in our faith. Several years back, many years back now, there was a book by Eugene Peterson called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's a great book, and what it's talking about is the day-to-day -day walk of obedience as a Christian. Now, he got the phrase from a theologian before his time, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, and he, he talked about this idea that the Christian life and I've heard this illustrated this way, and I like it. Sometimes we think of the Christian life like this. Like our life is represented by a million dollars. And so what we think the Christian life is, is we take the million dollars and we lay it on the altar and say, I give it all to you, God. And that's it. You know, we've done it now. We've given our life to the Lord. But that's not the way the Christian life works. It works this way. It's like you cash that in for dollar bills. And every day, you give a dollar to God. You give a cup of water to a, a man with shaky hands in the nursing home that can't hold it himself. You have devotion time with your kids in the morning before you send them off to school, one dollar at a time. You're giving your life over to God. You see, we all want to do the big spectacular things, but the Christian life is lived out in the everyday ordinary obedience over a long period of time, being faithful to God. 
And you know what happens when enough of us do that? Big spectacular things end up happening. Because God uses that daily obedience to do the big things that need to be done. It's a, it's a long obedience in the same direction toward God. That makes the Christian life leave behind it the legacy that God wants it to leave. So we have to understand it's not the big spectacular things necessarily, but it's the daily walk, the daily obedience, even in the little things, what we think are the little things. Abraham named him Isaac. Abraham had him circumcised on the eighth day. Those were precise things that God had said he needed to do in obedience, and he did those things, not just those things, but others if you read on more about his life. It is that continual daily obedience That's what God's looking for in response to his promise keeping in our lives. That's why Paul said to us in Galatians 6 and verse 9, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. You see a few keys here, right? First, don't get weary in in doing good stuff. Weary means tired, worn out, right? In that daily a long daily period of obedience. Don't you get tired sometimes? Uh, you get weary. You get worn down. But he says, don't let that keep you from, from going on. He, and he says, here's why. At the proper time. Who's timing? God's timing. At the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't do what? But the implication is if we give up, what happens to the harvest? It goes away. It goes away. You see, we don't always see the immediate blessing to the obedience. It's not always right there at exactly the same time we obey. Sometimes the blessing doesn't come to days or weeks or sometimes years later. You see the blessing of those daily obedient choices that you made along the way. And sometimes you don't even see all of it till eternity. I'm convinced none of us will see it all until eternity. I'm convinced that if you walk daily in obedience, there'll be people in heaven who are thanking God for you and your obedience that you didn't even know, knew you or saw you, observed you in any way. But your obedience made a difference in their lives too. So we need to understand that we don't need to get tired and give up along the way because in God's timing, He keeps His promises and He will reward those who are walking in obedience to Him. Well, let's see the next thing here in this progression of this story. And that is that the the promise was received and Abraham was obedient then in his response to God. And the joy was restored in their lives. The joy was restored. Look at verse 5 and (laughs) 6. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. I don't know about a baby at 100 years old, man. (laughs) Just the thought of that to me seems hard, you know. I'm tired thinking about that. Sarah said, God has brought me, what's that word? Laughter. And everyone who hears about this will do what? Laugh what? With me. Not at me, but what? With me. There's a difference in laughing at someone and laughing with someone. Now, I I can just picture... Even after the baby's born and she's holding the baby and they're looking at each other and they're looking at this baby and they're 99 and they're 100 years old and they just start laughing again. 
Can you believe this? Isn't this crazy that this is happening to us? Sometimes Suanne and I will just, we'll know God has done something. We just look at each other. We just both just start laughing. It's God. We know that's God. Isn't that great? It wasn't just coincidence. God orchestrated this. This is amazing. We just laugh. It's a laughter of joy that he's talking about in this verse. There's not always the laughter of joy, but, but the joy he's talking about here is the joy of seeing the promise fulfilled in a spectacular way. I, uh, I was in the delivery room with Sue Ann with both of our children being born, and I can remember with the first one, uh, Sue Ann had both of them naturally, uh, and no epidural, no drugs or anything, and, and boy, that wore me out, I've got to tell you. <laughs> yeah. I remember being in there with the first one. The doctor had me up there beside her real close, and he wanted me to talk to her and hold her hand because her blood pressure was going up. And he said, as long as you're there and talking to her, it helps keep her blood pressure down. I said, okay. Uh, I had no clue what I was in for. I, we were really young parents and never seen anything like that in my life. And, and uh, she was obviously in a lot of pain. I could tell that because she was squeezing my hand like she was the champion arm wrestler of the world. Every time she had a contraction, I did too. <laughs> she squeezed my hand and I went down on my knees. And I considered myself pretty strong, but nothing like a woman in childbirth. I want to tell you, guys. There's a good reason men don't have babies. I can tell you that. Uh, I don't think we can handle it. And I'm so thankful for women going through that. And, uh, you know, I saw the anguish and the pain and the struggle that it was to have a baby. But after the baby was born, you know what I saw? Great joy. Amazing joy. Joy like nothing we had ever experienced before. Far beyond anything we had experienced before. Jesus said about that in John 16, verse 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. That, that's been the most amazing thing to me. That after that, and after recovering from that, and even after we got the baby home and had to change diapers and do all of that stuff, you know what she still wanted to do? Have another one. I couldn't believe it. What in the world would possess you to want to go through that again, right? It was the joy that came through the process. The joy of the Lord produces laughter. It, it, it's great to celebrate God and His faithfulness and keeping His promises. But you have to remember that Abraham and Sarah were said to have laughed before this. Remember? Both of them. When God told them he was going to do this, they both. That's a different laughter. Look at Genesis 17 and verse 17. He's telling Abraham about all this. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Now, he didn't just laugh. What did it say? He fell face down on the ground laughing so hard. When God told him this. See, that's a nervous laughter. That's a laughter of joy but doubt at the same time. 
You know what a nervous laugh is, right? You, you, you think, oh, I might ought to laugh at that, but I'm not sure. So you kind of let out a little laugh and see what response you get, right? Like some of you, when I tell a joke in a sermon, you're just not sure <laughs> if it's okay to laugh or not. I know that's it because the jokes are funny, guys. So. <laughs> and you're just nervous about laughing. I know that's what it is. But you can let it out. It's okay. Uh, and if you need a cue, I'll let you know when, all right? Uh, I'm thinking about installing signs uh, that light up, you know, at the right time. Abraham fell face down laughing to himself. He was laughing so hard he was on the ground laughing. In Genesis 18, verse 12, it says, So Sarah, Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, Am I, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? She had a nervous laugh about that. But within that laugh, there's some doubt. But when you see God keep his promise, and that produces laughter, that's a different kind of laughter. That's the laughter of faith, of joy, of pure joy. Nothing excites me more than, than hearing the laughter of children. I, don't you just love, I cannot hear children laughing without it really getting to me. I, I will start laughing with a kid if they just start. And kids are just so uninhibited sometimes. They'll just laugh and they don't care who's around or what's going on. And God wants his children to have that kind of joy. When we understand who he is and what he's done for us and what he is doing for us and what he is going to do for us, it should produce laughter and joy in our lives. The Bible's full of humor and we miss it all the time. I, I bring it up a lot because I love humor and I love to use humor. But in scripture, what we miss sometimes is because the culture is different, we don't always catch the joke. Uh, the Hebrew culture was a different culture than ours in the time that Jesus lived. Humor was exercised sometimes differently than, than we do it today. Uh, but it was still humor and it was still funny to them in their culture. Uh, for example, uh, in the Hebrew culture, the, one of the biggest tools of humor in their day is hyperbole or exaggeration. Right? They would overly state something, overly exaggerate something, and they found that hilarious when they did that. Think about it. When Jesus was talking in Matthew 23, and he, and he talks to the Pharisees, and he called them blind guides, and he said this, You strain out a gnat, and you swallow a camel. Now, when, a, when in that culture they pictured that, you know what they would have done? <laughs> That's funny. You know, they would have punched the guy next to can, can you just picture that? Here we got, you know what? They strained out a gnat because with their water that they drank and things like that, they would often pour it through cloth or something to help purify it, get, get the stuff out of it. And they would do that. They'd be very careful to strain out even the smallest little gnats uh, in the water that they were going to drink. But he says, but then you swallow a whole camel. And he said, That's, the other guy would have said, I don't care who you are. That's funny. Right? See, in that culture, that was hilarious. And we miss it. Jesus was using humor to teach, to get the point across, to get him to realize what he was talking about. Another example was uh, in Matthew 7. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? He's got this really serious subject that he's talking about. And he, he talks about how, uh, how we can be hypocrites sometimes. And he says, he says uh, you know, it's amazing to me. You will try to get a little bitty speck out of your brother's eye while you're walking around with a plank in your eye. 
Now, that would have been funny to those guys. Now, if they would have laughed at first as a nervous laughter because then they would have realized, oh, he's talking about me. Right? But just picture that. A guy literally with a two-by-four stuck in his eye trying to get a speck out of your eye. Are you going to feel comfortable with that? I don't think so. Neither am I. It was funny to them when Jesus said that. It was hilarious to them. Jesus was using the humor of his day, of his culture, to get the point across. What he was trying to teach them. See, humor is, is if it's done properly. Not, now, I'm not talking about the coarse humor that so many people use in our culture today. That's just vile and, and, and so sinful and, and so ungodly. I'm not talking about that kind of humor. I'm talking about the kind of humor Jesus used where it, it diffused the hard situations of what he was trying to teach, but it got their attention, it got them laughing, and it got them feeling good. And when they were doing that, what were they also doing? Listening to him. He was able to keep their attention and teach them the things that he needed to teach them. And so he used humor that way. In Proverbs 17, 22, it says, A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. God doesn't want us to have dried up bones. He wants us to have cheerful hearts. And so humor and laughter is a part of what God wants for us in our lives. And if anybody has reason to be happy and laugh and enjoy life, it ought to be Christ followers. Of all the people in the world, it ought to be Christ followers who have that kind of joy in their lives. Uh, I was reminded as I was talking about this, uh, Wayne Smith is a preacher I used to admire and look up to a lot. Uh, he used humor all the time. He was, he was kind of known, for those of you old school, he was known as the Bob Hope of the ministry in the Christian churches. Okay? Uh, for those of you that are too young, Bob Hope was a great comedian years ago. Okay? Uh, and Wayne's gone on to be with the Lord now, but, but years ago, he preached at a church in Lexington, Kentucky for many years. And while he was at that church, uh, the city council in Lexington was considering uh, legislation to allow bars in that city to stay open. They already could stay open until 1 o'clock in the morning, and they were pushing to be able to stay open until 4 a.m. And so they decided to hold a public debate about whether or not they should pass this legislation. And they invited Wayne Smith to debate uh, a bar owner who was pushing this legislation. And so they had this town debate. They invited the community to come for it. And they were debating with each other. And it got heated and it got tense. And, and Wayne hated that kind of thing when it got heated and tense like that. And, and people were, anger was flaring out, you know. And Wayne didn't like that at all. And right in the middle, as they were getting actually near the end of the time allotted for the debate, Wayne said this. He just stopped and he said, listen, I am reminded of the words of Will Rogers. If a man can't get drunk by 1 a.m., he's not really trying. <laughs> and immediately, the other guy let down his guard. And Wayne just broke out in laughter. The other guy just started laughing. And they couldn't finish the debate. They just dismissed everybody as they were just rolling in laughter. You see, laughter can diffuse tension and anger. And God wants us to have laughter in our lives, humor in our lives. It reminds me of when Sue Ann and I 
When our grandson Riley was a lot younger, uh, and uh, he'll be embarrassed when I tell this story, but we tell it all the time, so get over it, Riley. But anyway, uh, that's what happens when your grandfather's a preacher. Sue Ann and I took Riley, uh, we just wanted to do one-on-one time with our grandkids and we would do different things with them. And we had taken Riley on an outing that day and we were, it was getting a little later, we decided to have a, a little time with him. Uh, we went to a coffee shop in the area and uh, Sue Ann and I got something to drink, we got him something to drink and Sue Ann tried to have this serious conversation. We tried to, you know, have fun but also talk to them about serious things and she said, Riley, you're good at so many things and you're talented in this, and you're very smart in school, and make good grades, and all that's good. She said, Riley, what do you think? You, we were trying to guide, you know, give him some godly counsel and direction. I said, Riley, what do you think you want to be when you grow up? And she looked right, he looked right at Sue Ann, big blue eyes, and said, what do you care? You'll be dead by then anyway. <laughs> <laughs> And Sue Ann and I just bust out laughing. <laughs> and she tells that story a lot, and Riley hates it. But anyway, uh, it's our way of getting back at him a little bit. Uh, here's the thing. We're all going to go through some hard things, and the Bible is honest about that, and Jesus is honest about that. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But then he adds, take heart because I've overcome the world. That, that phrase, take heart, means you can still hold on to your hope and still have joy and still have pleasure in your life even if you have to go through some hard things. And here's why. It's because God will restore your joy. He will keep his promises. And he will restore your joy. In Galatians 4 and verse 4, he refers to that. He says, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. You know, all of these Old Testament characters we revere, look up to, they never got to see the birth of the Messiah. But when the time had fully come, that phrase means when everything was right, when God had everything timed perfectly for this to happen, he kept his promise and he sent the Savior to the world to restore our joy in spite of the consequences of sin in our life and in our world God has an answer he has a cure and he provided that cure in Christ and that's why the psalmist cried out in Psalm 51 verse 12 after he had fallen terribly in sin he said to God restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me so the fourth thing the final thing today is this in the process hope was rekindled in Abraham and Sarah's life, and in the life of, of the people of God. Verse 7, Sarah added this, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne him a son in his old age. And Sarah understood something. If they had asked anybody else, Do you think I'll ever nurse a son with Abraham? What would they have all said? Absolutely not. You're way too old. They may not have said it that coarsely, but they would have said They would have thought it. But is anything beyond hope when God's involved? No. Now, that doesn't mean, I'm not saying God's going to do whatever you want him to do. That's, that we manipulate and control God. You know, I'm not going to lose hope. God's going to let me win the lottery. Maybe, maybe not. I would lean toward the maybe not if I were you. 
Because God knows best what needs to happen in your life and in my life. Okay? I'm not ruling it out. I'm just saying understand that this is by God's will, by God's plan, by God's timing, that God does what he's going to do. And he's never promised you to let you win the lottery. That's not a promise of God. He has promised to take care of you. Can you trust that promise? Yes. Even when it's hard, even when the bottom falls out? Yes. God still is faithful to his promises. I love back in chapter 17 and verse 5. This is one. Remember, Abraham and Sarah were first known as Abram and Sarai, and God changed their name. Look at verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 5. He says, No longer you will be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. You know what the Hebrew word name Abraham means? Father of many nations. God was saying to Abraham, I'm going to keep my promise. I know it's been a long time. I know it seems impossible, but don't lose hope. I'm changing your name now because I have already... Look at the tense there. I have made you a father of many nations. Had he had the son yet? No. But God says it as if it's already happened. Because when God promises it, you can count on it. It's as good as done when God makes the promise. Not the timing, but the promise. It's his timing, not yours. He said that to Sarah in verse 16. He said, I will bless her. Surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. King of, kings of peoples will come from her. He promised it ahead of time. When Isaac was born to them, their hope was rekindled. And they couldn't see it yet. Even after the baby was born, could they see all the nations that were going to come from that? Could they see all the descendants already that were going to be there? Could they see the Messiah that was going to come from that lineage yet? Absolutely not. But could they believe it now? Could they have hope that God was going to do that? Absolutely. God had given them every reason to have that hope restored in their lives. And that's what faith is all about, friends. Hebrews 11, 1, it says, Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That's what faith is. If God let us see it all ahead of time, would it require any faith from us? No. But what God does let us see is his faithfulness over time. How he's kept every promise up till now. And so we have evidence upon which to put our hope in what God has told us is going to happen down the road. I love in Isaiah 40, verse 30 and 31, it says, Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And that promise really, really stands out to me as I get older. Because I know even youths get tired, but man, old people get tired or faster. Right? But when we put our hope in the Lord, <laughs> He renews our strength so that we can continue on with what God has called us to. I want to close with this passage in John 14, beginning with verse 1. He said this, His disciples are with Him. He's, this is Jesus talking, and He knows He's about to go to the cross, and they're going to see something that if they didn't have any clue ahead of time, this would have been the thing that robbed them of any hope at all. Because they were going to see Jesus arrested, and beaten, ridiculed and spit on, nailed to a cross, 
They were going to see him dead on that cross, taken down off of that cross and put into a grave. And usually when you put somebody in a grave, what happens? They stay there. Is there any hope you're going to see that person again on this side of heaven? No. You see that he knew their hope would be crushed without some encouragement. So here's what he said to them. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, here's what I'm going to do. I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Jesus said to those disciples and through them to us, don't lose hope when it looks like it's the darkest time you've ever been in. I promise you, I'm going to come back and get you. I've got a place ready for you. It's an amazing place. And I'm going to take you there to be with me forever. And what God has done throughout the ages has given us every reason to know that we can hold on to that hope. And his resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest evidence of all. But before he could have the resurrection, he had to go through the what? The crucifixion. Without the crucifixion, there could have been no resurrection. And God is saying to us, I want you to understand, no matter how dark or how big the struggle is or how great the challenge is, understand that the resurrection is reason for you to have hope no matter what. In this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world through my resurrection. The scripture says in Hebrews 12 that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, even though he despised the shame. How was he able to get through such a cruel, hard thing? It's because he, he had the, the joy of the hope of what it was going to accomplish. You know what the joy set before him was? It was you. It was me having a way now to come back to him and live with him forever through the sacrifice that he was making on that cross. You are the joy that God has when you come to him and follow him into the life that he's called you to. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that today we've been reminded of the fulfillment of, of our faith in you, that you keep your promises and Father, it should give us such hope that we can have joy even in the hardest of things in our lives. Father, you're not telling us there won't be hard things. You're not telling us there, there won't be struggle or problems. You're telling us that you've overcome all of that. And if we hold on to our faith, then, then we can have joy, the joy of knowing that the blessing of the promise will be fulfilled in all of your children. And Father, if there's anyone here today who wants to come into that hope in their lives, that you've made it available to them and possible for them to have that hope too, because Jesus died for them too, if they would just come and submit to him in their lives. Father, help us. Help us to demonstrate the joy that we ought to have as followers of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.